0: Malik books. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African American books and gifts full of culture diversity, the total African American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you
1: need. That's the Godfather Soul, James Brown. I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580, Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, one 920 1580 Over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, President Joe Biden said that he and his family were not having any conversations about a potential 2024 presidential run in America while they were vacationing in Nantucket, Massachusetts. Following the midterm elections, President Biden said he intends to run for reelection, but added that he will make a final decision by early next year. Also over the weekend, California Governor Gavin Newsom said he does not plan to run for president in 2024, even if President Biden chooses not to run. That comment from Governor Newsom is big news. It matters because he's one of the names on the oft-discussed list of potential Democratic candidates come 2024. So take one name off that list. President Biden's approval rating right now sits at about 39 percent, and multiple polls indicate that Democrats have an appetite for a different candidate in the next presidential election today then a conversation about the modern presidency six debates that define the institution including how powerful is the american presidency these days what's more important in an american president character or competence is presidential success a matter of skill or opportunity will future presidents Turn away from checks and balances in favor of illiberal democracy. So many questions about the modern presidency. Pleased today to be in conversation for the hour with LMU political science professor and author Michael Genovese. Professor Genovese, how are you today, sir?
2: I'm terrific, and thank you so much for having me on your radio program. Especially because I've I've often been told that I have a face that is ideally suited to radio.
1: (laughs) I've been told that too at points in my life, but I'm delighted to have you on. And radio's good; it's an intimate medium, and people pay attention to it uh, because they're focused on what you're saying and not what you look like. And I've done TV and radio in my entire career, so I'm glad to have you on this radio program on KBLA Talk 1580. Let me start with this. Uh, Don't mean to make you too political. We'll get into your book, I promise, in a moment here, Uh, but I. I started uh, suggesting that President Biden has once again said that he is not having conversations at the moment, uh, certainly not over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, about whether he's going to run again. But he's sort of splitting hairs. He said he intends to run for re-election, but that a final decision won't be made until early next year. Um, how do you read that parsing, if you will, from the president?
2: Well, I think it's a useful parsing because if he does decide he doesn't want to run and announces that early, He becomes immediately a lame duck, and his his power is depleted, and his leverage is going to be uh, diminished. And so he needs as long as he can to to be seen as a player with power, someone who will be there tomorrow. And so he's playing his cards pretty close to the vest, which makes good sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the polls are, are pretty clear on this, and there have been a number from New York Times to uh, Washington Post, ABC. I've discussed them on this program, a number of polls that indicate that a majority of Democrats would not be unhappy with another candidate. Not that Joe Biden hasn't done his job He restored honor back to the White House. And, you know, we, he got us past the Trump era, although Donald Trump, of course, running once again. Um, but many Democrats feel he did what he was supposed to do uh, in that stopgap measure, if you will. He was a stopgap measure, uh, put another way, uh, to get us beyond the Trump era. Uh, but there are Democrats who believe that another candidate would uh, would do better this time around, and his poll numbers, the presence that is, poll numbers remaining so low, uh, doesn't aid and abet his case. On the other hand, he's the only person that's beaten Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, as you well know, you teach this stuff every day. Incumbency matters. Fundraising matters. Uh, and and so, you know, there, there are two sides to this story, as there always are. Uh, but how do you read these polls that indicate that many Democrats would not, again, be unhappy with a different candidate?
2: Uh, I I think you've stated it beautifully. Um, Biden was brought in to clean the Aegean stables, left behind and messed up by Donald Trump. And he did a a credible, maybe a very good job of doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was yesterday. What about tomorrow? Um, His age is a factor. A lot of Democrats are concerned about that. But in terms of his poll numbers, which is your specific question, I'm of the opinion that poll numbers are going to matter less in the future, primarily because there's almost a set number of people who will be against you and a set number for you and that's not going to fluctuate a lot you saw that with donald trump mm-hmm. he would be forty forty two percent forty four percent maybe uh, but he never got to fifty percent and i think biden's gonna face the same kind of dilemma which is that you know he's got the democratic support certainly not republican support and independents are going to be on the fence and so uh... whereas it used to be a decent measure um, of your political fortunes i think today public opinion polling and popularity and approval ratings are less important than they used to be.
1: Mm. I want to come back to that when we move forward here because there are a couple questions I want to uh, interrogate. Uh, you on. And I, I what you're saying is fascinating for me about, given our reliance on polls, your view that in the future, polls are going to be far less important. I want to come back to that in just a second. But your comment uh, when I asked about Biden, that that was yesterday, what about tomorrow, uh, reminds me of of, of, uh, of Bill Clinton for two reasons. One, because, you know, as you recall, Bill Clinton's campaign theme song was Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, right? We all know that, number one. But number two, one of the most pressing things I've ever heard Bill Clinton say is that every election is about tomorrow, never yesterday. Every election is always about tomorrow, never yesterday. And so I I thought about that when you made that comment. One final question about uh, Gavin Newsom, then we'll move on uh, in this conversation. So I mentioned that that, uh, Gavin Newsom, rather, over the weekend announced that he does not plan to run for president in 2024, even if Joe Biden chooses not to run. That was a bit of a shocker for me. How did you read the governor's comments?
2: Well, pardon me if I'm not uh, a, more than a little bit skeptical of his <laughs> comments. I think, you know, I, I'm sure that, uh, like most senators, Gavin Newsom wakes up every morning, looks at the mirror, and sees a president. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of the the, the 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 pattern. And and he's poised and positioned well to be a serious candidate. The fourth, what do we have? The fourth biggest economy in the world in mm-hmm. California. He's he's got the sort of the glamour, the television look. Um, he's young enough. So he's got that vigor, or Kennedy-esque in some ways. Um, you know, some, maybe he's too slick. Some would say, mm-hmm. but you know, he's, he, he's one of those people that would be right at the beginning, considered seriously by the great mentioner. And, and consequently it would be so hard for him to turn his back on that. How many opportunities do you get? Yeah. How many openings are there? You know, let, let us say he, he passes on 2024 Does he have to wait to 2032? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I just don't don't know if he wants to take that risk. It's also a risk if he runs. Um, But I think if Biden says no. That opens the door. Harris is, is uh, Kamala Harris is is not in the strongest position, although mm-hmm. she's probably would be the front runner from day one. And then there are all these other figures: the Buddha judges, the you know, Corbischaris, and there's going to be one or two people that we haven't thought about who are going to make a dent. Uh, and so I, I think, by all means, someone like a Gavin News- Newsom should be skeptical, should be very you know, deliberate. But I just can't see how you say no
1: yeah I'm with you on that one i i don't um I, I like Gavin Newsom but I don't trust him, not on this at least. <laughs> Uh, if, if if Joe Biden says he ain't running, I think Gavin Newsom gonna change his mind. And of course, the way they frame it all the time is, I said I wasn't going to run, but I'm being drafted. I'm being drafted by the people to run, and so I'm throwing my name in the ring. So I, I don't believe Gavin Newsom on that. If the president says he's not going to run early next year, we'll see what Joe Biden will in fact say after the first of the year. He's promised to give an answer about whether he's going to run. Although it said again, he says he intends to run, but a final decision early next year. The parsing, as you heard Professor Genevieve say, works for the moment, uh, but it's just a matter of time before he's going to have to make a statement one way or the other. And of course, we'll be here to cover it right here on KBLA Talk 1580. When we come forward in conversation with Dr. Michael Genovese, we'll talk about um, his new book, The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution. He is a professor of political science uh, and the uh, Loyola Chair of Leadership Studies, Director of the Institute for Leadership Studies, and President of the Global Policy Institute, all at LMU. He's a busy guy at LMU, but he's taken out an hour of his time to talk to us. We'll get right back to it when we come forward on KBLA Talk.
0: Malik Books I'm Malik from Malik Books Your community bookstore Specialized in African American books And gifts full of culture diversity The total African American experience That brings the world together MalikBooks.com Your place to shop for books MalikBooks.com Malik Books is what you need
1: Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest in this hour is LMU professor of political science, Dr. Michael Genovese. His new text is called The Modern Presidency. Six debates that define the institution. We were talking about Joe Biden a moment ago. Uh, As you heard uh, Professor Genovese say, though, it's never about yesterday. It's always about tomorrow. And we want to talk in this hour about the modern presidency as we move forward and what uh, it will become. Uh, in the days and months and years ahead. Before I jump into the book, Professor uh, Genovese, I want to come back, as I said, uh, to the argument you were making about poll numbers. Uh, and I'm fascinated by this because we seem to live by polls, although they, some, they sometimes get things wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we become so reliant on polls in our politics. Everything is an exit poll, an entrance poll. Um, we We live by these numbers. We see elections that are called before the polls are closed based on numbers. So tell me why you, uh, first of all, let me ask two questions. One, do you think we've become too reliant on polls in our politics, number one? And number two, uh, unpack for me a great deal more about why you think poll numbers in the days and years ahead will be far less relevant.
2: Well, Thomas, in a celebrity culture, we want to know who's up, who's down, who's popular, who the, the great, the new star is, the new thing this month. And so we, we look to polls, and we look to what other people say and what other people think. And it becomes a shortcut, both in culture and in politics, a mm-hmm. shortcut for that replaces thinking, oh, this person's up, okay, that's the one I guess mm-hmm. I'm, I'm supposed to like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think, you know, we are, there's a uh, polls are ubiquitous in society, and they're becoming, I think, less important politically in terms of presidents. And uh, by, by that, I mean that presidents are never going to be able to have the kind of popularity they used to have, at least not for the foreseeable future, because our politics are so divided, so hyperpartisan, and and we we rigidly just reject. The other, that uh, whether you're a Democrat, you would reject Trump. If you're a Republican, you reject Biden. And so there's very little wiggle room in terms of, oh, well, you do well, I'm going to give you my support. You do well, we deny that you do well. And so I think for presidents, popularity approval ratings are much less important as a measure of what they're doing, how effective they are, or where they might be in the future. Because right now, you're, uh, Joe Biden is being compared to an ideal op- uh, opponent. What happens when it becomes, you know, a, a me versus you? Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, then if you look and you say, well, he's running again against, you know, Donald Trump, he's starting to look really good. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't put a lot of stock in, in, in approval ratings. Um, and I think until we, we break this hyper-partisan addiction that we have, which is a which is poisonous. Mm. I think we're going to be in a position where polls don't really make the... Tell, tell us a lot about the presidents.
1: Yep. Let me let me try this on for size. Um, as you were talking about poll numbers becoming less and less relevant in the years ahead, um, I thought of this analogy, and you tell me, you're the professor, I'm, I'm the student here, you tell me whether or not this analogy makes any sense to you at all. I thought about the future of this democracy in the same way that the U.S. Senate operated for the last couple of years, which is to say that the Senate is sort of evenly split like the country is, uh, as you call, you know, we are hyperpartisan and we're addicted to our hyperpartisanship. So the Senate is divided like the country is, and in a divided uh, Senate, you get one or two people who wield an unusual amount of power. We know those persons to have been Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, because the Senate is so divided, one or two people. Get this uh, this extreme amount of power, and they ultimately determine the future in many respects of our democracy. That just upset me. I understand how the process works, but it just troubles me that one or two senators. Um, can uh, ultimately determine whether or not voting rights get passed, run the list of things that didn't get done in the, in this U.S. Senate over the last term. We talked about this some in our first hour today. But one or two people end up with all of this, uh, you know, outsized power because things are so divided, which leads me now to take that analogy and apply it to the nation as I see it. If the nation continues, to your point, to be as uh, divided as we are, that suggests to me that a small number of people in certain pockets here and there ultimately control our politics I mean, you control the politics excuse me you end up controlling our future does that make any sense to you at all as an as as an analogy
2: uh it makes good sense because you know we really are a 50 50 nation and that allows for one or two people to hold a a president hostage in the case of the democrats you said it mentioned cinema that's partly why georgia is such an important senate race to come a week from tuesday right because that'll give Biden one that would give Biden one more vote and therefore one person like a, a Joe Manchin can't hold him captive uh but but and again it's it's exactly because of the reason that you said you know the parties today are so different and the parties are so closely matched in numbers that no matter what happens a 50-50 nation, it's easy to, to have deadlock, it's easy to have gridlock, it's easy to have a veto power over whatever is done. And so until we as a people decide where we want to go, we're going to still be in that, this dilemma it, of a 50-50 nation.
1: But if we, if we stay deadlocked in this way, and I'm right about the fact, like the Senate, a handful of people then determine the future of this democracy, what does that ultimately say about our democracy?
2: Well, I, I think it shows the, the, the fundamental flaws. And that's, it's, it's a problem of institutionalism, and it's a problem of our politics and our culture. You know, when when you have a Senate that has a 60-vote requirement to get anything done, that's not in the Constitution. It, it, it's really anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. But we have so many rules and procedures set up to prevent change, and, and not to be too professorial. But the framers who invented this system... Were afraid of change. They were afraid of the people taking over. Uh, democracy was a dirty word in, in those days. It was often it said democracy. They used the word mobocracy, and there was a real fear of the masses because there were more of them than there were of the people who were the owners. And I'm not trying to make a Marxist uh, spiel here, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that, there, that that the interests were in conflict, and the framers were more concerned with stability and protecting liberty than with efficiency in government. They didn't want the government to be able to act too quickly, not certainly not by the whim of the people. And so they made it hard for people to lead our system. They made it hard to change things. That was their intent. Today we say, oh, well, we've got a crisis, we need to change it, and we can't hardly ever deal with those crises. So it really debilitates us, puts us in a straitjacket.
1: It's mm, the perfect way to frame it. Uh, we are in a straitjacket, and uh, I never heard it put so simply and so poignantly. We are in a political straitjacket, as it were, and um, I could agree more. Uh, let me let me move now right into your into your text because this conversation we're having now is a nice uh, segue into one of these six principles around which you frame this text. I, wanted, I we won't have time to do all six, and I wouldn't anyway because I want to help you sell your book, and I want to give all the book away, but I do want to pick a few of these out. Uh, and give you a chance to unpack it uh, for us in this hour. So, as we're talking now, it seems to me that the, the 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 principle that I want to go to first: these six debates that define the institution, as laid out in your book, The Modern Presidency, is: will the future of the U.S. presidency be one of liberal democracy or illiberal democracy? Given all we've just discussed a moment ago, take it away, Professor Genevieve.
2: Well, you you've hit on the most important of the debates. Uh, it's the last one I deal with in the book. And it, it's not about America alone. Uh, sometimes when I talk about the rise of illiberalism or authoritarianism is the cruder way to put it, people say, oh, you're just speaking on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a symptom. Mm-hmm. He's not the cause. He's not the person who led us into this. The The, the cause is bigger and broader, and it's global. Mm. You look across the globe at all these democracies that are turning towards authoritarian rule, Hungary, Poland, maybe Italy. Uh, You see uh, a little bit of an inkling of it happening perhaps in France, Mm -hmm. certainly in Russia. And you see strong men, and we do mean men, who command attention and exude power. And their argument is liberal democracies, the rule of law, checks and balances, separation of powers, hasn't worked. Hasn't worked for the people so let me overcome those checks and balances and and govern for you, the people. Donald Trump said that, basically. Um, Donald Trump met institutions that were a little stronger than he was. Thankfully, the liberal democracy was preserved. But in countries like Hungary, it's not being saved. In Poland, it's not. And so this big global phenomenon is a function of, of you know, Globalization—it's a function of of the global economies. It's a function of democracies. Not—and this is actually an important issue that the the right, I think, is correct about. Mm -hmm. Governments have not served the interests of the common citizen, of the working man and woman. Um, and so those people say, look, the, the, the government is set up to support elites. It's, it's against us. And so damn the system. I want a strong man to come in and represent me. Mm-hmm. Enter Donald Trump. Enter, you know, all these right-wing or authoritarian populists. Now, that isn't to say that this is all a function of right-wing populism. There are left-wing uh, uh, examples of this in Mexico sure. and in history. So, you know, it's not a left-right thing. It's a question of do you want to preserve A liberal democracy and the rule of law, as messy as that is, as slow as it is, I mean, it was was, uh, Churchill who said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones invented. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And he also said that that, that, that governing in a democracy is like paddling a leaky raft. You get where you're going very slowly but you're always having your feet wet. Mm-hmm. And and is that enough? People want answers now. We live in an instant culture. They want instant gratification. And therefore, the promises of the strong man, I'm going to build a wall and solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's appealing in a very superficial way. It's not a solution. It's not an answer. But that's the great debate that we are having today, and it's a global debate. And, and Lincoln talked about it uh, back in the 1830s when he said that Democracy's great threat is not from anyone from the outside conquering us it's from inside of us and the, the great speech at Gettysburg, where he tried to, to sort of honor the dead who who, who gave them themselves and Lincoln said this is, this whole war is based on a proposition, the proposition that you could have a government based on of the people, by the people, and for the people. Mm. And if we don't win this war, that government, that idea, that proposition may perish from the face of the earth. We're facing a similar uh, kind of situation globally today.
1: Let me ask this question. Looking at my clock, you got about two minutes before news, traffic and sports, but let me get started. We'll continue, as I suspect we'll need to on the other side. Um, what makes us better than anybody else? I know we believe in this notion of American exceptionalism, which troubles me. We ain't got time to have that debate. Um, but what makes us better than anybody else, which is to say if other countries are having a difficult time resisting authoritarianism. Trump gave us just a taste of it. Uh, But if other countries are turning to that because they don't have the patience, they want answers now, bring on the strong man. If others are having trouble resisting, how do you think we can resist long term?
2: Uh, Well, number one, Joe Biden, I think, gave us part of the answer, which is we have to make government work for the people. Mm -hmm. And that's always been the problem of government, especially democratic governments. How do you make it work for the people? Our great presidents did that. Franklin Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Their goal was to help make government work for and help the people. And that's why they're considered great presidents. They succeeded at doing that. If we can't do that... Mm -hmm. Democracy fails us; we fail democracy.
1: Yep. I guess the question, when we come forward, then, um, that I want to come right to is, how, in this present moment in late modernity, do we have a proper conversation about the proper role of government? Every one of us, every one of us believes that government has a role to play. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, we just think government all do different things, but everybody believes that there is a proper role for government to play. The question is, in this moment. In a country that is this divided, how do we go about having in the public square a real meaningful uh, conversation, a progressive conversation? I don't mean politically progressive. I mean a conversation that advances us. How do we have a conversation about what the proper role of government ought to be? How do we have that kind of civil discourse? Um, We'll continue with these um, uh, six debates. We've uh, covered one. Uh, that Professor Michael Genovese unpacks in his new book, The Modern Presidency, six debates that define the institution. More with Dr. Genovese when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We knew you stick around. This is L.A.'s home for progressive talk radio. Be heard. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's Dr. Michael Genovese, professor of political science. At LMU, also uh, chair of uh, leadership studies and director of the Institute for Leadership Studies and president of the Global Policy Institute at LMU, a busy man at LMU, uh, but thankfully, an hour of his schedule today is being given to us to talk about his new book. It's called The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution. We just talked about before news, traffic and sports, whether or not the future of the U.S. presidency will be one of liberal democracy or illiberal democracy. And uh, I, I said a moment ago, uh, Professor Genovese, I wanted to come back to this point about how we go about uh, in this uh, uh, era where we are. Uh, having this uh, sort of hyper-partisan addiction that you referenced a moment ago, um, how we go about having a conversation, a legitimate conversation, about what the proper role of government ought to be. As I said a moment ago, everyone believes there's a role for government to play. It's just we all want government to do the things that we want it to do, and don't want it to do the things we don't want it to do, we're divided uh, right down the middle, basically, in this country with a handful of people sort of controlling our future, as it were. How do we go about having a proper conversation about the right role of government in our lives?
2: Well, Tavis, I think a lot of it depends on civility. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's, that's not missing from our society, but is in short supply. Uh, And instead of shouting at each other and instead of assuming the evil nature of the other, I think we just need to, uh, to understand that we all have something to bring to the table. And you may have X, I may have Y, why can't we discuss it? And maybe we can come to some kind of an accommodation. I may not be able to convince you, you may not be able to convince me, but... But there are so many things that that we have common interests about, and we need to focus more on those things and on the things that divide us. That's a that's a simple way to to put it. It's also kind of pie in the sky, because there are many people out there who don't want to have a civil discussion. They they shouters and screamers. They get attention. You know the the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil and. Uh, and that's the nature of the, the news industry that, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. And and we need to get back to this, this notion that democracy is about conversations and it's about consensus and agreement instead of about winning and losing.
1: Mm. Um, I'm thinking now, um, p- pivoting here, I'm thinking now about the race for presidency, uh, the race for the Democratic nomination, actually, between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. We all know that Obama came out uh the winner of of that uh of that that fight uh for the democratic party's nomination but i'm remembering as you as you will recall the debate that hillary and barack had back and forth and every time she would say uh experience matters he would basically say vision matters um she had experience she'd been there she had the knowledge she had the know-how and he kept saying yes i haven't been there as long as she's been there but but vision matters ideas matter and that word change became the the word for his his campaign. I come to that because there are a number of, of these debates in your text, the modern presidency, six debates that define the institution that give us this sort of either or dynamic. One of the questions is, what's one of the debates I should say is, what is more important, power or persuasion? What matters more, the individual or the institution? What is more valuable? Character or competence? What is more important, skill or opportunity? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I could, I could pick any one of these, given the, the way I just teed it up with the Clinton and Obama back and forth about leadership versus experience. I guess I'll start with this. Um, what is more important, power or persuasion?
2: You know, that's a, a sort of a, an inside baseball political science kind of question, because for years and years, presidency scholars have followed the teachings of Richard Neustadt Neustadt from Harvard University, who back in the 1960s had a book called Presidential Power, who said that presidents are institutionally weak, so they have to be politically strong, and they get politically strong through persuasion. And that view dominated uh, the studies of the presidency, but in about the last 15 years, the concerns have shifted more towards the uses of power, mm-hmm. um, the independent authority that a president has. Now it's it's clearly it's stated as an either-or proposition, but in the book, most of the uh, conclusions that I reach are that it's it's not either or; it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you you teed it up by saying, you know, Obama versus Clinton experience, you know, versus uh, ideals and hope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's not. One or the other. I think it's essential that, you know, the president be a person who is able to, it is, it is rocket science. Being president is rocket science. And you have to balance 47 balls and juggle them in the air all at once. And, you know, experience is important. But vision is important. Hope is important. The ability to, to draw people in is important. The ability to compromise is important. The ability to, to process complex information. I mean, there's so many things that are important. So it's not, life is not an either-or proposition. And the presidency, more than anything, is not an either-or institution. Mm.
1: I had a guest on this program um, some weeks ago. used the word hope a moment ago. And uh, my team and I are still sort of um, talking about this. They introduced, excuse me, this guest introduced the word into our conversation, hopium, like opium, but hopium. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and that word has resonated with me for the last few weeks, uh, this notion of opium, hopium uh, that many of us are sort of addicted to in this country. And I'm wondering how you see that. Put another way, uh, since you invoke the word hope, whether or not you think that Americans are entering a phase where we have just lost hope uh, about the vibrancy, uh, the future vibrancy of this democracy. Let me let me add this uh, before you respond. Uh, We discussed a poll not long ago on this program that found that for the first time ever, they've been taking this poll for quite some time now, but for the the first time ever, they found that a majority of Americans think that our best days as a nation are behind us. We'll come back to the presidency in just a second. But if a majority of our fellow citizens, Professor Genovese, believe that our best days are behind us, um, yeah, we're going to need some hopium around here. But uh, your take on that, since you used the word hope a moment ago.
2: I think hopium is a great word, and I'm going to steal it. Um, <laughs> I stole but, it. You can have it too. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's, it's, it belongs to the people.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, without hope, all is lost. Period. Lincoln knew that. Mm-hmm. Jefferson knew that. FDR knew that. Obama knew that. And because we cling to hope, we cling to hope because we're human, and we ha- we need to believe that tomorrow will be and can be better. And it's a- up to our leaders to. Tell us, show us how it can be better. What will it take to get us to point X? What will it cost us? How do we get from here from A to B? And, and, and great leaders understand that. I'm, I, I'm going to use Ronald Reagan as an example of a president who was able to articulate a vision mm-hmm. that animated followers. Now, I didn't follow that vision, but boy, was he able to get people to follow that vision. Mm-hmm. And it was a positive vision. Donald Trump, on the other hand, had a very negative vision. And his wasn't based on hope. And that's why I was I was actually shocked that he won back in 16, because almost all the time leaders who present a a a case for hope tend to do very well. Donald Trump made a case for, you know, resentment and for anger. And he won. And that was shocking. And that was, uh, I think, a reflection of what you've asked me, which is, you know, what what how do how do we get by without hope? Um, you know, I think we caved in under Donald Trump and gave into the, this, this sense in which it, government is not about us coming together and solving our problems. It's about getting our enemies. If if we are if we do maintain that view, and if we do believe, as as the polls are saying, you're correct, that you know I don't think tomorrow is going to be better. If that disease infects us, it will be like pollution that con- continues to spread, and that. And that is what I said earlier when Lincoln said that I'm not worried about anyone coming from the outside and Mm -hmm. destroying our democracy. I'm worrying about us destroying ourselves. And that, that's the only enemy that we have to fear. FDR said was fear itself. Um, you know, I think that the thing we have to fear most is, is this loss in belief in our future. Mm. Uh, and if that's the case, then we become cynical and we, we start to see the world as hostile and we start to see enemies everywhere. And then we start to see the, the victory. Of, of cynicism over hope.
1: Yep, I say all the time on this program that cynicism, uh, skepticism rather, skepticism is healthy, cynicism is dangerous. I'm all for being skeptical and, and, and raising a legitimate uh, question. So skepticism is healthy, cynicism is dangerous, and uh, it sounds like you and I are in agreement on that particular point. Since you mentioned Donald Trump, it leads me to one of the other debates in this book, The Modern Presidency, six debates that define the institution What is more valuable, character or competence? Uh, And uh, I might add, Donald Trump was lacking in both areas, character and competence. But it's your book, it's your debate. Uh, What is more valuable these days when we elect presidents, uh, character or competence? You
2: know, one of the things I hate to talk about in class is this question of character because we find no correlation between high character and high performance. Some of our greatest presidents had deep character flaws. FDR uh, was a, I don't want to say habitual liar, but he he, he once said, I, I'm the juggler. I never want to let my left hand know my, what my right hand's doing. Mm. Um, politics can does have its smarmy side. It has its dirty side we call it the dirty hands dilemma that that presidents have to do things that aren't always you know the, of the highest moral quality mm-hmm. um but but i think the whole question of character uh is a difficult one for us to deal with because for example bill clinton cheated on his wife does that disqualify him richard nixon i'm sure never cheated on his wife but what bill clinton was doing to women richard nixon was doing to the country and and so you know Personal character does not always translate into the presidency, and that bothers me because I want to believe that good people are needed. What we really need are people who are capable, who, are, who can get things done, but have a vision and a goal that's very positive and constructive. And along the way, they might do some things that are not completely uh, up, uh, above board. For example, we live in a very dangerous world, and sometimes we have people who want to do us harm. Uh, Machiavelli told us uh, back in the 1500s, uh, you know, being a good person and turning the other cheek means that you're going to get slapped on the other cheek and your country's going to be taken over by people who will be very evil. And so sometimes you have to meet evil with evil. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to do things that are unsavory. And so the, the whole question is, where are you grounded? What's, where are you centered? Are you centered in a view that I only – well, like Lincoln. I only do these things because they're necessary and because they're for this greater good. Yeah. And the problem for Lincoln was that he knew that he couldn't be the ultimate judge of that yeah. because we, are, we can't be judges in our own cases. So once the Congress came into session after he started to act – he brought it to Congress and said, "Look i 've done these things. You have to approve them if you don 't approve them, we stop mm-hmm. and so there were the checks and balances but 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 Lincoln acted in the emergency uh, and and understood that and it was great humility that mm-hmm. i don 't have all the answers. You have to help me
1: yeah um, you mentioned uh, moral quality. you mentioned uh, the presidents oftentimes have to do things that are unsavory." Uh, Again, not long ago on this program, I had uh, Professor Louis V. Baldwin, a brilliant professor emeritus now at Vanderbilt University. He is a King scholar, as in MLK. Uh, He's a Dr. King scholar, and he posed a question to me or made a statement to me some time ago that I'm still wrestling with. And his statement was essentially this. He says, Tavis, I do not believe that a true Christian could be president of these United States. I do not believe that a true Christian could could ever be president of these United States. Take that comment from Professor uh, Baldwin and link it to what Professor Genovese just said about what presidents have to do, and you understand Baldwin's point. I digress. We'll continue when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore. Specialized in African American books and gifts full of cultural diversity. The total African American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need.
1: Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580. The book is called The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution. The author of that book is LMU political science professor, Dr. Michael Genovese. Um, Dr. Genovese, let me come to this uh, debate in your text. What matters more, the individual or the institution? On balance, that question seems like a silly question. Uh, We we know what the answer should be, but it's not silly. You spent a whole chapter talking about it. So tell me more about what matters more, the individual or the institution?
2: I think the way that I can best explain that is by asking you to think about Donald Trump. When Donald Trump was elected, there were a lot of us who were very suspicious and worried. And we were told, don't worry, the institution will manage him. The institution will take care of his his rougher edges. And to some extent, it did. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, he wanted to remove all troops from North Korea. And one of his cabinet members went over, walked over to his desk and took the piece of paper with the order on it away and left the, left the room. So so you know, in, in some senses, the institution is a powerful guiding point for a president and a limiting point as well as a liberating one. Um, but clearly the individual has an incredible impact. The individual can shape the behavior, as you saw, again, with Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump said, I want a, a ban on all Muslims coming into the country, that became his policy, uh, and the institution could not resist. Uh, and so there's always a tension. Hopefully it's a creative tension. Sometimes it's a debilitating tension between the interests of the president as an individual and the interests of the presidency as an institution, which is an ongoing institution. Um, and, and so who should be governing? Well, we elect a president to govern. But uh, the institutional side of the presidency has always been uh, a source of great difficulty for presidents, partly because our presidents tend not to be able to spend much time managing their institutions. Mm -hmm. And so they sometimes are victims to those institutions.
1: Two final questions uh, about the institution when we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Michael Genovese on KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, Got a little less than four minutes left for Professor Genovese in our conversation. I've enjoyed the hour, but uh, less than four minutes left. Let me see if I can get out two questions right quick. Number one, I find that uh, at times we have a difficulty separating the president from the presidency. I got in some trouble during the Obama era trying to hold him accountable. And my, my response to people was very simply this. As long as this black man is the head of the American empire, you have to have a critique. You cannot not have a critique of any president who's the head of the American empire. And people um, oftentimes took my words and couldn't separate my critique of the presidency versus the president. They're not the same thing. Your thoughts?
2: You're right. And it was the great uh, John Gardner said, America is full of unloving critics and uncritical lovers. Mm. We need to be, and you use the word, uh, not cynical. Uh, but a little skeptical. We need sure. to be skeptical even when even when our person is in the White House, especially when our person is in the White House.
1: Mm. Can't
2: give anyone a free pass. It's too damn important.
1: Nope, I take you on that. My final question, the exit question today is back to the institution. Um, we asked earlier, what matters more? One of the debates in your book, what matters more, the individual or the institution? Uh, and my thought was you were talking that a lot of people no longer trust our institutions, Uh, beyond the presidency. They don't trust the presidency, the executive branch. They don't trust the legislative branch. They sure as heck these days don't trust the judicial branch. I was reading some some stats the other day um, that the branch uh, of our society now that people still have some trust in is the military. And that's a little scary. I digress on that for the moment. But people writ large, not just the presidency, don't seem to trust institutions, period, Professor Genevieve.
2: And you can't govern if, number one, trust is so low, and number two, you have divided government. And that trust started to explode after Vietnam and Watergate in the 1970s, when you saw a dramatic decline to the point now where trust is the currency of democracy, and if trust is low, democracy is in trouble.
1: Hmm. Um, What say you then about the future of the American presidency? We saw Trump uh, push the, uh, the envelope completely off the table, Biden sort of... Uh, brought it back and has done his job, but writ large, uh, what say you about the future of the American presidency?
2: I'm just a blind optimist. I, I, I say that right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I think that our best days are ahead of us. I think we'll get through this. I think we'll be stronger. I think we'll be better. And I think the world needs us to be leaders. As flawed as we are, as many mistakes as we make, um, who better than us?
1: Mm. And how fragile, to your mind, you're 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 an optimist, I hear, but to your mind, how fragile is our democracy?
2: It's teetering right now, but it's at the low point, and and I I think you know Donald Trump is in our rearview mirror, hopefully, and that will be a a big step in strengthening democracy. So I again, I'm I'm very very optimistic.
1: Dr. Michael Genovese, uh, professor of political science at uh, LMU, Loyola Marymount University. His book is called The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution. We've teed up some of those for all the rest of them. Pick up a copy of the text. Once again, it's called The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution. Professor Genovese, good to have you on this program, sir. All the best to you. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much, Travis.
1: The final hour, Travis Smiley, when we come forward, we'll have a conversation uh, about why intelligence isn't enough. Intelligence is not enough if you're a black professional in the workplace. We'll talk about that when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 15.
0: Malik Books I'm Malik from Malik Books Your community bookstore Specialized in African American books And gifts full of culture diversity The total African American experience That brings the world together MalikBooks.com Your place to shop for books MalikBooks.com Malik
2: Books is what you need